Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The Canadian novelist and screenwriter Patrick DeWitt is an amusing stylist of the highest order, who credits his liking for a name comedic dialogue to early and sustained exposure to Monty Python. He has written four novels, Ablutions, The Sisters Brothers, which was made into a film, Under Major Domo Minor, and his latest, French Exit, which the New Yorker called a miniaturist work of howling nihilism. DeWitt satirises the wealthy 1%, specifically a Manhattan socialite, infamous for finding the body of her husband in their bedroom and probably heading to the ski fields for R&R, and her adult son Malcolm as they up sticks for Paris in relatively impoverished circumstances. He discusses his work and motivations with Paula Morris in a session supported by the Canada Council for the Arts. We hope you enjoy it. So let's talk about Patrick's books very briefly before we have our conversation. Such books. Uh, Patrick is the author of four novels that roam the world and its imaginative possibilities, and each are quite different from the other. But they're cohesive in their dark humour, their inventiveness, their originality, and their willingness to embrace the possibilities of story. Um, Patrick, I think, is not quite like any other contemporary writer in English which is why his work perhaps often brings comparison to auteur filmmakers like Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers, uh, or in the case of his third novel to the film, The Princess Bride. Comedy, melancholy, tragedy, absurdity, humanity, all of these are present in Patrick's work. Now, his novels, however different, often contain journeys. In Ablutions, his first novel, an alcoholic bartender walks out of a bar and goes towards the Grand Canyon. In the book is shortlisted the Sisters Brothers, two gunslingers ride from Oregon Territory to California to kill someone, to kill a lot of people as it turns out. In Under Major Domo Minor, our unheroic hero leaves his village by train to go to a castle because he wants something to happen in his life. And in Patrick's latest novel, French Exit, a rich and dysfunctional mother and son who've lost almost everything moved to Paris to play out their final extreme act of their lives together. I really, reading it, which I just loved, I thought it was kind of Edith Wharton meets Deborah Eisenberg meets Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. But really, it could be no one other than Patrick DeWitt. So, Patrick, Tanakwe, uh, maybe start with something you said a few years ago in an interview just in case you want to deny it here publicly yeah. or, or discuss it more. You said, if I think of myself as writing in any tradition, it's maybe a tradition of people who are interested in upsetting tradition, usurping mm. a genre or even kicking it in the teeth. I'm making it sound meaner than I feel in my heart. It's a very youthful, gleeful feeling, like drawing a moustache on a beautiful painting. There's a touch of the vandal to it. So do you still feel that, that you're a little bit of a vandal? Vandal maybe is is over harsh, but but I recognize I recognize the truth in that statement. There's a thing you know when you see a picture of yourself and you're revolted. When I hear when I'm quoted when somebody quotes me to me, I, I feel that same <laughs> feeling. Um, but I think that that's still true, and I think that um, 
Uh, yeah, I think it's stated accurately. I, I, I like the idea of approaching something familiar and then defacing it in some way, but uh, it's, it's a loving defacement if such a thing exists. Now, in the new novel, French Exit, at first I was thinking, you know, your previous books are quite dark, quite, have quite dark underbellies, and I thought, well, that's not going to happen this time. We have two very wealthy New Yorkers here at the heart of it, but they too are sodden and drank and weighted with memories. Yeah. And did you know when you began writing the story that it was going to have that very dark turn? I think all my work shares the characteristic of a, a um, it's a measurement of light and dark, and, and it's usually about 50-50 or 60-40. And um, this is just my natural, I think, approach to life, the way I view the world. I know that there's going to be bad news in any long-form project of mine because there has to be, because life is filled with bad news. But how do you approach it, you know? So in, in my life, I approach it with a measure of, I think, emotional remove via humor. It's just a natural thing that that would reoccur in, in my work. I knew that things were going to go south in this book pretty early on, and I was dreading it, and then suddenly, <laughs> one day you have to sort of discuss that, you know? Um, it's interesting, the film that they made of my second book, The Sisters Brothers, is a lot of the humor was removed from the film. And this is a, a decision of the uh, director. And it's faithful to the book, but for that one characteristic is, is largely removed. And The Sisters Brothers, the book is, is quite humorous and jaunty. And so that element taken out, the story is still the same, but without the humor, I was impressed by how sad a story it actually was. Because when I think of that story, the story that I told, I think of it as being a, a, a mix. And the humor really softens the blow. And so if you take humor out of my work, I think that at its core, it's, it's, it's quite melancholic work. Um, you just told me that you sold film rights for French Exit as well. Yeah, there, um, I did a film years ago called Terry, with an American director named Azazel Jacobs, who's a dear pal of mine. And since that point, we've been wondering if we could work together again, and so I used to give him ideas of mine or, or rough drafts of the novels as they come into existence, and he read the rough draft of French Exit, and he said, well, I don't know how you feel about it, but this is the one I'd like to try to make into a film. And I was only too pleased, because I admire his work very much, and we get along really well. So I wrote a script and he gave me, we wrote a script, uh, I, I did quite a lot of the work, but he was very involved in, in the shaping of it and everything. He had lots of brilliant ideas to make it better. And anyway, he found people to be in the film and, to make, and he got money to make it and I'm just really impressed at somebody. It's such a Herculean task getting a movie made. It's quite a lot more difficult and complicated than writing a novel. But he got uh, Michelle Pfeiffer to be Francis and uh, J Lucas Hedges to be Malcolm. Uh, actor named Tracy Letts to voice the deceased husband who's living in the body of a cat. We've given too much away. Yeah, but um, may or may Letts. not be living in the body of a cat, I should say. Tracy Letts, the playwright. Yeah, right? yeah. Some of you may know Tracy Letts as the author of August Osage County. Right, yeah. Yeah, brilliant man. So, Yeah, so that's just come into a, a focus for me that that's going to happen, and I'm just really pleased. Now, can we just talk a little bit about Terry? Because yeah. did that film that you wrote, um, which came out in 2011, I think, yeah. it, it's, 
It came out of a, a, an abandoned novel, did it not? It did, yeah. After I wrote Ablutions, my first novel, um, I wrote a second book, uh, Front to Back. And in the course of writing the book, I thought it was a good book. I was in, engaged, and I thought, oh, good, I'm, I'm doing it again. I, I'm going to write a second book. And then I finished it and showed it to people, and they explained to me that it wasn't a particularly good book, <laughs> which was shocking, and it took me about a week to digest this news. But then I woke up, and I, I realized that they were, they were correct. But Azazel, God bless him, read it, and he says, well, whether or not you put it out as a book, I think that there's a film in this one particular section of the book, which is about an adolescent boy named Terry. And can I make a film of it? And I, knowing that that would never happen because it's too outlandish a thing to actually occur, said, yeah, go for it. But then he made it. It was really surprising. And um, I was pleased that all that time I'd spent working on the book wasn't, you know, wasted. Not that it's ever necessarily wasted because you're, at the very least, I think you're staying in shape, you know, because you're working every day. But um, to have something concrete come out of it was, was, was a joy. And it led me to the realization that I enjoy adapting that I enjoy writing screenplays, which I'd had no interest in before Aza brought it up. And you formed a relationship with John C. Riley, who appears in that film and also the Sisters Brothers, yes. Yeah, that's what led to him getting the... I remember being on the set of Terry in Los Angeles. They were filming on an elementary school. Uh, that was like the set of the day, was this elementary school. And I was sitting there, I remember going over the rough pages of Sisters Brothers, the edits that my editor, Lee, had sent me, and so I was going over them in between takes because film sets just take forever for something to happen, so there's lots of downtime. And um, Aza had read a rough draft of Sisters Brothers, and he had asked if he could give it to John because he thought John would like it. And I said, yes, that's great. And um, that was the beginning of the, him making, John making the Sisters Brothers into a film. Now, do you have any other abandoned projects along the way? Yes. Um, we were chatting about this briefly backstage, but it seems that between each novel that I finish, there's either a full novel that I don't put out or um, a good chunk of a novel that I have abandoned. It seems like there's always sort of a, a failure before the, the success, um, which is very frustrating, and I wish that that I wish that I could sort of break that, but it seems to be just my lot in life. There's always a, a, a misfire before the, the proper work comes along. And do you want to reveal what you've just lost? Yeah, so after I finished French Exit, I, I'm not really... If I don't have a project on the go, I, I do feel quite useless, because it's sort of like the one thing I can do. And uh, if I'm not working, then what am I doing? And I start to have a sort of an existential crisis. And, um, so anyway, I got right to work on this, 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 what was meant to be book five, and I'm plugging along, and, and it's going quite badly for four months, five months. I couldn't get under the skin of the characters, and the story was there, but that's not enough. Anyway, around month five, I had a breakthrough, and I switched from third person to first person, and it suddenly came into focus for me, and I was so pleased, because I was really, five months is a long time to fail every day for me, and I was becoming to, you know, I was discouraged, and I was wondering if something's the matter. There's no guarantee that you can continue to write books, and it seems like, if we're going to be honest about it, most authors at some point, they lose something. They continue to publish, usually, but something is missing. So I'm waiting for that to happen. It seems logical that's going to come along, and I thought, oh, I guess that's happening now. I would have hoped to have a few more books out in the world before 
the mediocrity crept in. But uh, anyway, month five, one day it comes into focus and I'm just really pleased. And uh, the work seems strange and new and less reliant on punchlines. You know, I'm kind of a punchline writer. And uh, so there's four months of bliss, work, working in bliss. And I should say, I, I work at home in my office, obviously. I don't have Wi-Fi at home. Um, I was working in a program called Pages, which I will not be working in anymore. Uh, one day, I went to open up the computer, and the book was not there. And so I thought, well, it has to be somewhere. And I went to the uh, Mac store, and the man said, it's somewhere. You don't, don't have to worry about it. Files don't just disappear. Okay. And an hour later, he says, it's not there. It's disappeared. <laughs> so I went to the, sort of the next level of computer dork. And um, same thing. I'm going to find it. Don't worry about it. And at the end of it, he said, I can't find it. It's really mysterious. It's just not there. So then I went to like the Yoda of computer, you know. This guy lives in like, you know, a cave. And it's very serious. And he said, I'm going to find this file. I don't want you to worry about it. And he, he couldn't find it. So the book's gone. Yeah. Sad story. But I'm so glad to be here because if I wasn't here, I'd be at home just ruining the day. So thank you for having me, guys. Yeah. We're especially lucky to have Patrick because he tells me he's an anxious traveler. Yeah. He's also a very tall traveler, and we all know, those of us uh, who have suffered through long-haul flights, it's difficult. Yeah. But you've, you've stuck quite close to the Pacific Northwest for most of your life. You don't yeah. want to leave that rainy place. I think it suits your pessimistic sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I am one of those people who a sunny day usually brings a bit of dread. And I think it's rooted in guilt, because if it's sunny out, you have to go outside, right? Yeah. But if it's raining, you stay so in. So how did you cope with living in Los Angeles? I drank a lot, I drank a lot. <laughs> have you read Ablutions? Um, yeah, I did, I drank a lot, and I, and I, I, I uh, was, was unhappy there. Um, but you know, you get stuck in a place, you know, you fall in love, or you, I don't know, it just became the norm. My brothers were there at the time. And um, there's good things about Los Angeles, but they became increasingly difficult for me to locate. And I kept leaving. It was like sort of a, a, like a negative romantic relationship. I would leave, and that was it. You know, I was never going back. And then I'd come back for a visit, and I'd fall in love or something, and then I was stuck all I have to do it all over again. Um, now I, 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 I go as infrequently as possible. I only have one brother living there now, so there's not that much a, a reason to go, half the reason that there once was. Um, but it was hard for me. And returning to the Pacific Northwest, which is, you know, proper rain and, and gloom, and it feels, I'm much happier there. <laughs> now you live in Portland, which is an odd city in its own way, don't you think? I suppose so. Um, it's very, uh, I don't like the word livable, but it's very easy to live in Portland, I find, which maybe is a good thing or a bad thing, but it, I enjoy it there. Uh, the people are very civilized and I have lots of privacy, and, and um, there's lots to do if you want to do it, and uh, the food's excellent, the drink's excellent, and it's, it's a beautiful place. But I met you last year in Vancouver, and I asked you, was Portland really like the way it was portrayed in the TV show Portlandia? I'm sure a lot of you have seen that. Yeah. And you said yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, the, the, that all those tropes exist. 
and it's pretty obnoxious actually, but um, easy enough to avoid. Yeah. Can we, for you, because you're inside drinking I'm inside, scotch, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your childhood in Canada? And, yes. I mean, it kind of goes back to you being the vandal and the rebel, but you had a very happy childhood, yes. I did. I had um, my mother and father still together, and, and um, which especially for the years that I lived in Southern California, I, I came to see that was quite uncommon. All my friends came from uh, divided households. And uh, my mother and father are just really lovely people. And my father is very interested in, in fiction, and that's what got me going on this whole tangent. Uh, um, so he was a big reader? Always reading, yeah. He's a carpenter, and he'd come home from work and lay on the couch, and he'd read whatever it was he was reading. And he loved records and bookstores. Record stores and bookstores. And whenever he's a, he's a jazz, jazz guy, whenever we'd be driving around as a child, I was always looking for bookstores or record stores because if we saw one, he would pull over, and that was two hours out of my life I was never going to get back. And there's nothing worse for a nine-year-old child than a record store or a bookstore. Or that for me, that's how I felt. And so sometimes I'd see them, but I wouldn't say anything, and he was driving, and he wouldn't see, and he'd drive on, and I would be so pleased. Sometimes he'd, was that a record store? And then he'd turn around, and ah, oh, and that was... Anyway, I, I, if I, now, in my home, the book is filled, the house is filled with books and it's filled with records and that's, those are my two vices. Um, it's odd that I was so against them as a, as a child and they've become the things that bring me the most joy in, in life. Um, anyway, childhood in Canada was, it was a back and forth thing. Uh, they moved me back and forth from Southern California to Canada a few times. And these were very different uh, experiences. Um, but largely, largely it was quite, quite a happy childhood, yeah. And Canada was, was a, Vancouver was a really nice place to live in, just in that it felt, um, it's corny, but you know, you just, it was a safe place and um, quite attractive, quite, you know, quite pretty and, and um, there was skiing and there was, you know, all sorts of things. I raced BMX bikes when I was a kid, so there was lots of BMX tracks and it was a very sort of traditional North American childhood. Um, but that there weren't any great tragedies or deaths, I think was, um, I think back in my childhood with, with fondness. And a lot of it was just the sense of safety that I had that my parents gave me. But then what went wrong in your adolescence? I don't know, you know, one day the, the curtain just drops. Pu uh, puberty, puberty, the worst. No, I was actually quite happy, um, and I'm still jolly. I don't mean to paint the picture of an unhappy person. I'm pretty jolly in my, in my, in my inside I'm celebrating. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I'm not. I'm not a morose person, and uh, I've got my work and my friends. And so you didn't follow the traditional path of lots of writers. You dropped out of school. You didn't go to college, but you were always an avid reader. Is that yeah. correct? Around the age of, I guess, it was 11 or 12, I started asking my father questions about the books, and I think I felt a certain distance from them because he'd come home from work and he'd be tired, and I'd want to throw a baseball or something. And, he preferred the company of the books, and he, he was never malicious about it or anything like that, but clearly they took precedence over catch. So I began to wonder why, what's so great about these things that are keeping you from playing catch with me. And he just started sharing books with me, adult books to his credit, books filled with um, all sorts of complicated information. What so kind of book do you remember? What kind of things post -beat, like to read? Post-beat books mostly, post-beat books. It was very male. I didn't realize that for a number of years, but it was, you know, Hubert Selby Jr., right. um, Burroughs, 
And then uh, Richard Brodigan, things like John Steinbeck too, which was lovely for the sense of place, Northern California. Um, books that were sort of, and I'm still looking for the same kind of book, books that are simply written but delivering complex truths. Um, Charles Portis, I remember reading The Dog of the South in ninth or tenth grade. And can we just pause it? The Dog in the South is one of the funniest books ever written. Yeah. It is a fantastic and an underrated novel. All Charles, Part Charles Portis's books, I think. Um, those are the ones that I, I recognized that comedy could be high art, that comedy could be literature, which some people still don't really believe, but I'm banking on it being true, you know. Um, at what point did you acquire your tattoo? Oh, I've got a few. Um, this came up last night, but um, young, folly of youth type stuff, you know, uh, 19, 20, 21, 22. By the time I was 25, I sort of recognized that I'd had enough, and I stopped. I've been looking into tattoo removal, um, which I think is maybe a waste of time and money, but maybe we should just live with our mistakes. There's nothing, you know, I, it's, 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 a, it's a, 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 such a character of, of the young, you know, not thinking beyond the day, much less the decade away. Um, yes, I will want to look at this image every day for the rest of my life. And it will resonate with me throughout my long, long life, you know. Turns out that's not true. Remember um, when Johnny Depp got Winona Forever tattooed on him? Yeah. And then they broke up. And do you know what he did to the tattoo? Wino? He changed it to Wino Forever, yeah. Which is more accurate. Yeah. So Pamela Anderson, I'm sorry, I know this is a digression. She had Tommy tattooed for Tommy Lee. Yeah. And then when they got divorced, she had it changed to Mommy. Mommy. That's nice. So is there anything maybe you could do along those lines with your tattoo? Maybe. I have my ex-wife's tattoo name tattooed over my heart, which, is, which has been interesting as I've moved on in my life. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually, I remembered something now. My friend Azazel, in the days before tattoo removal, or you know, they cover up tattoos with more tattoos now, that didn't really exist for quite a while. And he had a friend whose father, this was in Manhattan in the late 70s, early 80s. He had a friend whose father ha had the mother's name tattooed, and it was, you know, Sarah or whatever. And then they broke up and he moved on and he got married again. And so this man got an extension of the tattoo, and now it said, Sarah, comma, my true love is Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you had to do in those days, I guess. <laughs> kind of clever. Can we talk about France a little bit, because it is obviously in the title of your new book, and it is a setting. The novel begins in New York and moves to Paris. Yeah. When you first went to France, you didn't want to go. Yeah, I didn't. Um, my wife at the time wanted to go, and I... I, I I just had the sense that it was one of those places that had been... Some people will tell you that it's ruined, you know? Ruined by tourism and, and time. Um, and I don't know why I thought that was so, but I just, there was other places that I would have rather have gone. Like where? Anywhere. I just wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to go somewhere in Eastern Europe. I remember sort of arguing for somewhere in Eastern like Europe. Like Warsaw or something? Yeah, Budapest or, 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 or somewhere just... Anyway, uh, I, lost the, the, I lost the war and I went to... France, dutifully with my wife, and, and the second I got off the plane, not the plane, but the second we, I remember we checked into the hotel, and it was near the Luxembourg Gardens, and I just began walking around in increasingly larger circles, and, and I just had this, you know, we talk about I'm an anxious traveler, 
And it's often very true that it's hard for me to enjoy a place because I can't relax. And I just felt so calm in, in France, which is odd because it's such a bustling, busy place. But I just, lo I just loved it. I really loved it. And that's a feeling that stayed with me, and I don't really know why. But every time I go there, I just, I'm, I'm just so pleased. So how often do you go? Um, it was a real sickness for a while, and I actually stayed there four months once. Um, but typically, if I'm invited to Europe for a festival, I always say, I'd love to come, but can you please fly me out of Paris? And so I'll tack on a couple days there. But I've probably been 20 times. Gosh. Yeah. And so you, did you know that you wanted to set part of the novel there? Well, I did four months in, in, in Paris researching a novel that was the novel that I lost. Not the one that I just lost, but that novel, you know. I'd finished Sisters Brothers and I wanted to write a story about somebody who expatriated. So I went there, stayed for four months, and then that book never came to fruition. And I abandoned it. But all the experiences and notes that I'd taken came in handy when I worked on French Exit, which was the book after the next book. Now, you're, you're quite willing to embrace, I want to say, a, a magical element. That's not really true. We heard earlier there's a cat who yeah. is, the, is the representative on earth of the dead husband. The dead husband was awful, by the way. Yeah. It's good that Francis wasn't a tattooing type. Right. Do you ever worry if it's a step too far for your readers, or do you not, are you not concerned at all? I do worry. I remember in an earlier version of the Sisters Brothers, there's a, there's a very subtle uh, supernatural thread. In the beginning, the character Eli spends a night in the cabin of what is apparently a witch who's in the process of cursing the building that they're all spending the night in. And in the earlier version of this book, that through line, the moment when he becomes either cursed or blessed, it's never really revealed. In, the book as it stands, it was much more clear what was going on, and it became kind of a supernatural book. It was sort of more the engine of it. And um, that was too much, and it really changed the, the landscape and distracted, I think, from what the story was ultimately about, which is about family. Um, but it seems every time I work on something longer than a couple of pages, some fantastical or supernatural element creeps in, and I don't question it too much. I have faith in my own instincts, I suppose, in the way that all artists need to. If I keep coming back to it, it must mean that I have something more to say about it. But it's a delicate balance with that sort of thing, because I'm not interested necessarily in writing a fantasy book or a book about, you know, I don't want it to be overtly, I don't necessarily want that to be the engine, it's just sort of more an embroidery attached to the, the heart of the story, and that suits me. But whether or not it who can say what's best? But that's as, as much as the, the, the comedy and the tragedy measuring that out, it's a very fine line in terms of the supernatural in my own work. And I usually have to. I mean, the process of writing for me is overwriting and then cutting, and I think that's sort of the common. But it's, um, it's very much usually a measurement, light and dark, and then supernatural, and then reality. If you set a book that's completely supernatural, completely fantastic, it's hard for me to engage beyond the level of entertainment. Do you know what I mean? There has to be some sort of real blood and guts to it, um, or it becomes sort of more an illustration rather than something that's a true portrait of life on Earth. So, anyway, yeah, it is, it is a fine line, and, and, and I hope that I haven't overdone it. You tell me.
Well, it's a really a fantastic book. And one of the things I love is they end up in Paris, everything going to hell. Sometimes people say to me, what's your book, book about? And I say, well, just people get together and everything goes to hell, which yeah. is really the plot of most books. But yeah. that you embrace, I mean, they meet all sorts of people who end up gravitating towards this apartment. Yeah. And we hear lots of people's stories. We hear a detective's story. We, we hear the, the strange expatriate Madame Reynard's story, that's, and that's what, what it reminded me, why it reminded me of the Canterbury Tales, that all these strangers are gathering together mm -hmm. and sharing stories that open strange windows on other places. Yeah, we were talking about Jane Bowles backstage, and I think I did have, oftentimes I'll work and in the, in the inspiration is it's quite remote in my mind. And sometimes I won't recognize it until after the book's written. Sometimes I don't really recognize it until somebody points it out to me. Um, it's, there's something to be said for not really knowing what you're doing. I think that there's a great joy in it, you know, the bliss and ignorance, but also if I'm acutely aware of what I'm doing, um, I just feel less free and it's less interesting on a moment-to-moment -moment basis in terms of, you know, like when I sit down in the morning to work, I often don't know what's going to happen and that's a, one of the great joys of the work for me. But with this book, French Exit, I did have Evelyn Waugh in mind, and I had Jane Bowles in mind, who wrote one novel called Two Serious Ladies, which I highly recommend. And then I thought of John Cassavetes. And the, devolve, the way that the parties between these adults devolve with the use of alcohol, but also just through their own neuroses, I was thinking of uh, Cassavetes. But the way that they all come together and just sort of cohabitate in a small space without anybody saying, I'm sorry, why have you moved into my apartment without, you know, it's a stretch of the imagination, but this happens in Jane Bowles' book, Two Serious Ladies. And it's just a wonderful, um, it's something that could never happen, would never happen, and yet it's just truer than true somehow. Jane Bowles, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with her, was the wife of the composer and writer Paul Bowles, that they had a very uh, avant-garde marriage. They did. And where they yeah, both did their own thing. But it's really his fame has eclipsed hers. Um, but she's, she's a writer of short stories, that, which I'm familiar with. Um, there's a collection of hers that Virago put out called Everything is Nice. Yeah. But I have never read Two Serious Ladies. And, I mean, one of the things I really like about you is that, for example, in your third novel, your acknowledgments include the names of a number of writers who yeah. you read and, and helped inform the book. For example... Eudora Welty, another favorite writer of mine, yeah. who I th imagine you were thinking of, The Robber Bridegroom. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, uh, some writers are, are funny about saying, I don't read other writers while I'm writing. Yeah. And you're not like that? Well, I'm not. And I'm looking for a specific experience. The books I read when I'm not writing a book, I'm looking for any type of experience, really. I'm not looking for anyone specific. Uh, note or emotion, but when I'm working on a novel, I only want to read novels that make me want to work. You know, there's a certain, if you're a painter, say, and you go to a museum, oftentimes you'll see a painting or a grouping of paintings that you want to leave, you want to go home and you want to get to work. That's the feeling I'm looking for when I'm working on a book. And um, when I was a younger writer, I was concerned that maybe this would lead to um, not plagiarism, but influence, recognizable influence. But I sort of got rid of that fear because it's just a silly thing to worry about. And writing is 
Writing is re uh, re reading is writing to me at this point. It's the same thing. I'm exercising the same muscles. And um, that feeling that I get when I'm reading something that's truly fine and I'm awed by it or envious, um, it, it feeds my work and it, and, and it pushes me along. And uh, the influence, the question of influence is interesting. The reason I put those authors at the end of the book under Major Domo Minor was because reviewers and people generally like to tell an author who his or her influences are. And in my experience, they're almost always uh, wrong. So I thought, okay, well, this is actually, let me help you. Let me. And then also I thought it was a friendly gesture if somebody were to read this book and then think, well, I would like to experience something similar to this. Well, here's a list of people who have done it better than I did it, so here you go. Um, I found that most reviewers completely ignored this list of authors and just <laughs> continued to assign me incorrect influences, which is fine. I've accepted that this is going to happen, but I, it's sort of mystifying to me. Did you object to my Edith Wharton comparison? No, 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 I, li I, li I like Edith Wharton, yeah. Deborah Eisenberg you like as well. Deborah Eisenberg's wonderful, yeah. Another really underrated writer. Yeah, Who's yeah. a writer's writer in some ways. Yeah, I just got a new one uh, Echo put out in the States. The collection, it's called yes. My Duck is Your Duck. My Duck is Your Duck, what a great title. Which says a lot about Deborah Eisenberg, I think yeah. that title, I mean that she just really doesn't care. Yeah. If or cares very deeply, just doesn't, yeah. she cares in her, in probably in her, she strikes me as somebody who's got a very rich inner life, and it's like, a, you know, maybe this is incorrect, but I think she cares very much, but she cares about her specialized universe and the rules that, that she's written for herself, you know. She was asked in the Paris Review what she begins with in a story, and she said, I never begin with anything. Yeah. And, but it does remind me of you in a way where you're not the kind of writer who sits down and says, I'm going to write an outline and then continue. No, I never really did. And when I've tried, it, it usually winds up being a waste of time because, let's say, you sit down to write a story and, and, you, and you have the A plotted out to B, B being the ending. I find by the time I get to B, a, enough unexpected stuff has happened in, in point A that B no longer makes sense or has lost its power. It's no longer uh, the proper place to land. So when I've tried it, it doesn't work, so I just sort of gave it up. And I do think, as I said, you know, not knowing what's coming is, is a joy for me because to be surprised by one's own work is a, is a wonderful feeling, you know? It feels alive in a way, the work feels alive in a way, and it also feels, I've oftentimes, when things are going well, I feel more like I'm taking dictation. The story's there already, do you know what I mean? It's just a question of, I don't feel like a, like a god creating a world, I feel like um, somebody who's just listening more carefully than the other person. And so I'm privy to this information that was there all the time, you know? And it's so surprising, you know, where the stories turn sometimes, it's just, um, that's really why I do it, for that feeling. That feeling of being surprised and baffled. Can I ask you a qu question about research? Because obviously the Sisters Brothers set in the 1850s, Oregon Territory, the gold fields of California. Yeah. How did you approach research for that? Pretty loosely. 
Um, I had a, it was, a, it was, it was something like research that led me to writing that book. I found a, I had done a, I've told this story too many times, I'm sorry, but, um, the book started off as a bit of dial, an exercise in dialogue between two men on horseback, and they had no place, no point of view, they weren't related, they weren't the sisters, brothers, they were just two men on horseback, and they were having a very banal conversation, which I enjoyed the idea of banality on horseback, it seemed pleasing to me in some way, but it was just an exercise and it wasn't meant to go anywhere. I certainly had no plans to write a Western, which I know very little about Westerns, and the ones that I've read I didn't like uh, particularly, I'm sorry. Anyway, I was walking around my neighborhood in North Portland, and I went to a yard sale, and I found a book for 25 cents called The 49ers, about the gold rush. And I bought it, because it was a beautiful document, leather-bound book, it was so cheap. And the picture is more than the text in this book. I was flipping through it later in the day, and I recognized that there was a correlation between these pictures and these men on horseback. And suddenly they had a place in time and a place in the world. So I used this book, but it was much more visual information rather than factual information. And I, with my first book, Ablutions, I was with a different publisher, and I had this publisher. And at the sort of 11th hour in the, in the process of editing this book, it's not a fact-heavy book, it's a book about alcoholism. There's not that many facts in it, but any text will have facts in it, it's sort of inevitable. This magical sort of sub-editor came in, and he wasn't my editor, he was just this man who was just there to check the facts. And he was like his mind like a steel trap, he just knew everything in the world that you could know. I referenced um, more cigarettes, they're these long brown cigarettes, and I referenced more 120s, and he said, more's only come in 100s. Okay, so I changed it to 100s, and there was all the, over and over again, so I thought, okay, with the next book, with a new publisher, they'll have a, a magic fact-checking human being, and I'm gonna need him or her this time, because it's a historical novel. So I'm waiting, waiting, where's the fact person? Fact person never shows up, I send an editor, and I said, I'm just waiting on this fact, uh, fact wizard, where's the fact wizard? And we don't have a fact wizard. Oh no, so I did 11th hour research on the book <laughs> with Wikipedia and everything and I was just really panicked. And did, toothbrushes, ex did toothbrushes exist in 1851? And <laughs> all these things. Toothbrush is a key to the story. I know, so it was nerve wracking. And then there was, a, there was an issue too with, um, there's, a, there's an invention in the, in the book, a, a, a liquid that illuminates gold. And I thought, well I need to throw in a couple of However you actually make gold glow, um, I need to throw in some ingredients just to make it more real seeming for the reader. So I wrote to my uncle who had just retired and he's a, he's a scientist, marine biologist, excuse me, but just a brainiac, this guy, and he had some time in his hands and I said, I've got a task for you, tell me how to make gold glow, give me the ingredients. And he just went off for two weeks or something like that and he mailed me this huge thick document with all these photocopied pages that he highlighted and underlined and arrows pointing all around and I couldn't read it, it was so boring. And I get to the end and the last page and it said, Dear Patrick, you cannot make gold glow. It's an inert substance and you can't do anything to it really. One of its properties is that it's immovable. And so I thought, God damn it. Because it's a big part of the book. And then I remembered, oh, it's fiction, I can do whatever I want. And that was the end of my research. I, I, there, was no, there was no point in going any further because... 
And I, I thought that there would be pushback, because I know some people like everything to be just so, and there, there are readers of historical fiction who love it for the factual aspects of it. And I've met a few of these people over the years, and they don't like the book, because there are errors, and they're blatant errors. I know, I know it's wrong. So this is off-putting to some of the reading public. But it's a very small minority, and they're easy enough to uh, ignore, so. Is it only that book that attracts the, the fact squad? Yes, yes, yeah. No one comes to you about ablutions and says it's not like that when you're in a no, public. No, <laughs> no, no, yeah. Uh, yeah, because the rest are, I mean, uh, under Major Domo Minor is, it takes place in a distant past, but I was intentionally making it murky geographically and time-wise, just so that I wouldn't have to even think of that whole aspect of the process. So. That's what Kazuo Ishiguro said about the buried giant as well. What's that? Because he said originally he was going to set it in a much more contemporary way in France, but then it was all going to have to be, you know, all these real things about France, and he didn't want to have to address that, so he yeah. put it back into the Dark Ages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I wrote a book. The new book takes place partly, largely, in, in Paris, and I'm very close with my translators, my French translators. Philippe and Emmanuel, and I love these people, and I stay with them when I'm in Paris and everything. We're very close. And Philippe said, you're writing a book that takes place in Paris. Whenever Americans or Canadians write books about Paris, they always, always, always get something wrong. It's never not happened, and this is going to be the first book written by a North American that has no errors in it because he was going to and I gave it to him thinking, well, I've got everything right. Everything's correct, absolutely correct. And there was probably 45 errors. Mm. Little things, the commas in the wrong place, the accent wasn't correct, uh, sensual piece was misspelled. It was tiny little things that cumulatively added up to a document of just complete ineptitude. <laughs> and if I were a Parisian reading this book as it was, I don't think I would have been able to enjoy the book because it was so, so wrong. So anyway, God bless Philippe and Emmanuel because they corrected all the mistakes for me. You just said Canada and the U.S. I wondered, you've been living in the U.S. for some time. Have you yeah. become a U.S. citizen? Yeah, just in time. Just in time for uh, the apocalypse. <laughs> I had such complicated feelings. You know, what, the reason I became... I'm a very proud Canadian. And I have lived in America at this point longer than I lived in Canada. And this is just owing to the fact of my having a child. And, you know, as I say, life takes over and you're, you wind up staying somewhere. There's no particular allegiance or um, I'm not patriotic or anything like that. But I lied to get my green card many years ago. And um, it was in the days before the internet. And so the lie was safe and that the the means of communication were, were disjointed. But um, I began to travel a lot for my work, and one day they asked me some leading questions. And I, I sensed that they knew I'd lied to get my green card. But, and it turns out that they did. They'd figured it out. But it was quite opaque, and it was something very far in the distance, and they, I don't, they couldn't necessarily bust me for it. But every time I would leave the country, I would return, and they would put me in secondary inspection. Mm -hmm. And I would miss a flight, or oftentimes several flights. And they would just rake me over the coals every time. And you'll not meet a more unpleasant person than a, than a, 
somebody in you know that world if they've got you under their thumb. Specifically in the U.S., many of us are familiar with US, going through L.A. in particular. They're awful. And um, they had me, and, there was, and so I went to a lawyer, and I said, what can I do to stop this happening? Because it was getting to the point where I thought I can't travel anymore. And he said, the only thing you can do is to become a citizen. So against my wishes, because I had no desire to become an American citizen, really, I was pleased to be living with a green card. It was fine. Um, I got citizenship. And then Trump was elected. But I remember the, uh, the, the, the swearing-in ceremony, it was such, I went into it with such cynicism in my heart and it, kind of a, quite a dark feeling, really. But there was all these men and women in the, in the room getting it and it meant the world to them. Grown men crying. And it was sort of lovely and moving, so that tempered my cynicism somewhat. But really, in my heart of hearts, I, I, I don't... I'm ambivalent about it, I guess I would say. And then the state of things, we don't have to get into politics because there's nothing really to say about it, but the state of things in the U.S., it makes me, I feel ashamed, you know, deeply ashamed to be an American citizen. How do you feel about being a Canadian citizen? Oh, it's much less complicated. Much less complicated. I mean, any... I'm suspicious of any sort of government, of course. Uh, but, yeah, Canada is... A, is, is a, they just seem to be more uh, sensible, I guess, you know. I mean, Americans are insane. America's insane. One thing we were just talking about briefly, and we're about to go to questions, by the way, but last year when I saw Patrick, the Giller Prize, which is their equivalent of the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, I guess, um, they took the finalists on our roadshow around Canada, so they appeared together in many different cities giving readings. I went to the Vancouver one, which was fantastic. Mm. I wish we could have uh, something like that here if there was uh, sufficient interest. And you were saying in the US there's less interest about prizes, literary prizes, but in Canada it's a big thing. Well, I've never experienced, I mean, I say this having never won a prize in the United States, so maybe if I won one, <laughs> I would have a different point of view, but it seems to be to be much more subdued. I mean, there's a mania in Canada around the Giller Prize in particular. And there's a mania in, in, in the UK for the Booker. When I was shortlisted for that in, years ago, I remember you know, my cab driver knew who I was. And um, it's the only time a cab driver's ever recognized me, certainly. So it's kind of amazing, but it also, coming from the US, where it is less an issue, it feels very surreal. But it's lovely because oftentimes it's a, a, a smaller authors get this great big boost. And um, to get a stranger to read your book is a difficult thing. So something like a prize, if it's celebrated widely in the country that you're in, it simplifies that process so much. So it's, it's a lovely thing. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Please join me in thank thanking you so much. Patrick Dewitt. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.